Hey gang, welcome to Big Brother and the Hodling Company. It's a podcast about music and Web3 and trying to fend off Big Brother. I'm a Keegan Voice. Today I spoke with Matthew Sanders, aka M. Shadows, the lead singer of the band Avenged Sevenfold. Sanders has become one of on-chain music's most outspoken champions, and I wrote a piece about the ways in which he and Avenged Sevenfold are using Web3 to cultivate their community, which was based on a previous conversation that he and I had. And you can read that piece on Decentral's website. But for this conversation, we dived into other things. The human voice, exploring psychedelics and the limits of speech, the origins of Avenged Sevenfold, and writing a record about the positivity of meaninglessness, and embracing the beauty of our impermanence to find joy in the short time we have on this earth. Hope you all enjoyed the conversation. Here we go. Hey, Matt, it's great to have you here. Good to see you. <laughs> For all of these things, I like to start at the beginning and go all the way back to the roots and just get a sense of, of you and you know, where you're from and when your relationship with music began and then work our way from there. Yeah, I think, um, you know, my earliest um, sort of interest in music probably started with, um, you know, the things my dad was listening to. Hmm. Um, he was like a... You know, he's one of those guys that kind of was really into the Beatles and then Led Zeppelin and a vinyl collector, um, really into Alice Cooper and Mm. um, all sorts of things, Boston, Mm. things like that. But what really piqued my interest was, or what's cool about my dad is he's always stayed really relevant and current with music. So when he heard, you know, Guns N' Roses for the first time and um, Nirvana's Nevermind and all those records, you know, he had the tapes in our car. <laughs> and um, I, growing up at the time, became obsessed with those sort of current bands at the time. Um, and I remember stealing his Appetite for Destruction tape and mm-hmm. I had this little Coke um, machine tape player. I would play it in my room. And I remember at one point he came in, he's like, you can't listen to this. Like, you know, I had explicit um, lyrics stuff. And yeah, that was my earliest recollection of music, Headbangers Ball, and just my dad Mm -hmm. just being into new current stuff. Yeah, totally. I'm curious how, you know, how your dad stayed attuned to the music that was coming out. Did he like get into MTV? Was he listening, you know, to just, did did he make it a point to, you know, listening to different radio stations, was that always, you know, kind of a passion for him? You know, I think um, because of the, the era that we're talking about, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was major drivers um, such as like KNAC and K-Rock, you know, radio stations. And MTV was something that, you know, was like just very global, like ever, not global. It was very, very much watched by many generations. And it did change after a while, but for a while they had, you know, Headbangers Ball and they had people like Ricky Rackman and there was a, there was a blend or like some sort of like um, bridge between the old rock and the new rock, but it seemed really natural because they were constantly playing, you know, things like Whitesnake and Skid Row, mm-hmm. but then they were also moving into the Soundgardens and the Stone Temple Pilots right. and the Alice in Chains of the world. So I think my dad just naturally rolled into these newer artists. Um, and he had the benefit of something that a lot of people don't have nowadays, which is like sort of that gateway 
into new rock and, and new music, which is these drivers like MTV and, and radio stations. So I just remember driving around the city and he'd always be playing KNAC. So mm. you might hear, you know, Guns N' Roses and Metallica and then, then this new band Korn is out or mm-hmm. here's the new, you know, thing from Far Beyond Driven, Pantera. So I think you just had these different drivers where you were being fed the new good stuff. So I think my yeah. dad just kind of rolled into that and he hadn't opened enough mind to um, appreciate it. Totally. Yeah, it sort of speaks to the, the importance of, you know, human curators like DJs, you know, that who are, you know, at these radio stations who, you know, alongside a curatorial team are making those connections. Like this is kind of like this, but it's an evolution of this. And it is kind of sad that we don't have as much of that anymore, or at least it's not as culturally relevant, like those types of connections, tracing our legacy and our lineage back through, you know, the music that we're now standing on the shoulders of. I mean, I remember um, at the time, you know, everyone would always complain about what was being played on the radio and um, they'd be, they'd complain about, you know, there's, why isn't this band bigger than, you know, than they are and why aren't they getting played? And, Mm -hmm. um, all those sorts of things. But now you see the other side of it where now everything is kind of just forced on you and you, people don't really have anywhere to turn. There's really not many curators. Um, and I think there was something special about that. You know, I went to the natural um, human history museum or whatever, and there was like this thing showing about, you know, it was like based on candy bars. And like, if you give a human too many options, they actually don't enjoy that. Um, they kind of like it when it's, um, when, the, when it's kind of narrowed down to like the four or five best things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of think that's kind of the case with music. You know, at the time we were being fed some of the very top bands and the cream of the crop and these bands were able to become super, you know, popular and super, you know, famous. And it caused for, you know, these megastars and you'd go to these shows and they were always sold out and everyone was kind of listening to these really cool, um, you know, cream of the crop type bands. Um, and so there's something to be said for that. Something that doesn't happen as much anymore. You're not going to see megastars um, like you used to because of the way that everything is currently set up. And uh, so, you know, there is, there's, there's um, positives and negatives to both, I think. But uh, yeah, it's definitely different. And I, I definitely enjoyed um, hearing new things on the radio. But I was definitely one of those people that complained about it as well. <laughs> yeah me too yeah it's interesting that like you know humans like intuitively think that more choice is better but then you know there's a paradox of choice where we're just like put in this position where we can't make any decision because there are just way too many it's like the curation level has moved way further ahead so that now we're exposed to like every single thing that exists and then we have, we have to make decisions and try to sift through like 8 million artists who are uploading music to Spotify instead of the people like the R&D guys who are out there doing that work for us and then serving us like you know whatever 100 of them yeah it's 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 interesting and i think you know if you were to tell any human um, what they would prefer. Most people think they prefer the freedom of, you know, that exploration, but really it's just, we don't have the time in our day 
You know, right. we don't have enough time to truly vet through all these things and listen to it all. And we're just kind of getting thrown everything in the world. And, um, you know, and you get kind of what we have right now, which is a really interesting music industry <laughs> where things that do pop off now are very bite size and it's ultra catchy and sometimes plasticky esque you know, just so it catches your ear out of all the, the noise and minutia. And then it's kind of like you get these meme songs or these little things that happen on TikTok. And it's just, um, listen, I, I don't, I don't, um, want to bash on any of that. Cause I just, I don't, it's not my thing, but, um, it's just how it's being served these days. And then what, what starts happening, unfortunately, is most artists, not, I mean, there's artists that want to be popular and there's artists that just do it for the art. And there's some artists that do both. And so what happens is you start seeing artists chase, you know, the ambulance in a way. They start trying to write things that they think fit an algorithm. And then you've got kind of a mess, right? Like the song can only be this long. This is sort of what's worked before. This is how you have to present it. This is where this is the platform you have to use, and then you start getting this real Frankenstein of of um, whatever it is, you know. And, and so I think that's uh, that's uh, I'm not going to call it a problem. I'm just going to call it a thing. <laughs> and so um, it it just is what it is, right? And that's and so you get a bunch of people that just want to be famous over actually presenting their art and kind of letting it fly. Totally. I like the Frankenstein comparison that that feels appropriate. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's weird where we've we've like you know have these platforms that are are optimized for consumption at at all cost and and it's put like on on equal playing ground like all of the hobbyists who like you know it's important to be able to play music and like and that's amazing and everyone if they want to should be able to play music, but now the people who treat music as a hobby it can put music in the same places that people who have spent their entire lives dedicated to the art and it's served to us in the same way like within the same vehicle and that and that seems to me to be like creating the frankenstein that you talked about you know yeah i think you know i was talking to mike shinoda about he thought it was funny that you know a new metallica album costs the same to the fan as you know, the guy in his basement that's writing the first demo for the first time. And, and he's just like, it's kind of funny. Like you don't roll into the car lot or anywhere else um, and think that you're going to get, and, and listen, music's subjective, but I guess you could say, well, a lot of things are subjective in a way. Um, you could put someone in a Tesla and they might say, I'm just not into this electric thing, you know, like, but, but there are objective things as well. Like these are nice parts. This is what put together well. Et cetera, et cetera. I guess you can't really compare them, but I did think it was interesting. It, it piqued my interest, just the idea that it's funny that no matter the quality, music is all kind of on the same playing field and it's just all thrown out there in the same way. And there's really nothing really differentiating it. And by the way, like there's something super freeing and better about that, right? There's something, there is an idea there where before, if you only had what we had before, which is like you had to get signed to a major and then the majors were going in there and they were paying 
you know, radio stations to play their stuff, whether it was with cocaine or <laughs> concert tickets or whatever it was, you know, there's payola and all this stuff. And there was like a whole other scheme going on, you know, um, give this a shot. You know, we just signed this new band, give it a shot make sure it gets at least 2000 plays a week and we'll see if it works. Um, and there was like a beauty in that as well. Like people, like there was people, the record industry that loved that. Um, and if you were to tell a bunch of people, Hey, what if everyone had an equal playing field? They'd say, yes, we want to opt into that. But now you've got a situation where, yeah, nothing is rising to the top. It's just kind of, you know, it just is what it is. And so I don't, I don't know if humans are, you know, they're, they're unique and complex and, um, there's always, you know, the grass is always greener. So, so I don't know, you kind of got to just, you know, in my mind, you got to kind of like adapt with the times, but also just do you, you know, just fully step into what makes you unique and, um, and just roll with the punches. And also, you know, I think it's interesting because we still hold up, there's a lot of people that hold up this sort of, um, this old school metric of what's popular or what's um, success with a, with a new paradigm. So the whole industry shifted to something else, but there's still people in the industry that hold up things like physical album sales or, you know, uh, how, how many views you getting on this or that when it, when the whole thing's kind of shifted to something else. So I think it's interesting watching um, humans kind of the industry sort of wiggle its way through this and watching dinosaurs kind of die and watching people take chances or not take chances and um, seeing who wins and who loses and seeing the, the public sentiment around it on um, what they think is important and what they find not important. So I know that was a lot of like touched on a lot of little different things there, but um, it's just an interesting time we live in, which is kind of the wild West, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, as you said before, there are a lot of pros and cons to both. I mean, like the democratization of being able to put music in places is, you know, it was great. But then you have all the problems that, you know, you were talking about. And it's, as you said, just just more about adapting. Um, and yeah, I mean, speaking of adapting, I'd love to go back and just hear about your transition from like, you know, pretending you were Slash, jumping on the bed, you know, hiding corn records from your dad. And like, what was your, you know, first step into the industry? Like, when did you decide, like, when did you more seriously, you know, kind of start to make music? And what was that process like at first? Yeah, so um, I met um, one of my best friends, the Rev, Jimmy. Um, you know, he passed away in 2009. Um, and, but I met him in second grade and by the time we were in, by the time he was in second grade, he was already playing drums. Um, by the time we were in fifth grade, sixth grade, um, he'd already been kicked out of my, the school I went to at the time and he was going to a public school. I was, we were both going to this thing called St. Bonaventure. Um, he got kicked out in second grade. I still went to the school till sixth grade, but I was hanging out with Jimmy a lot. Um, cause he lived down the street from me and he introduced me to all these things like Dream Theater and Metallica and No Effects and Bad Religion and all these punk rock bands and all these metal bands, Testament, um, all these sorts of things. Frank Zappa, Mr. Bungle, all things that he was into because he was like this sort of like drumming virtuoso at the time. Um, and he continued to be that through his life. But 
at the time he was going to college classes for percussion and um, learning um, and playing in these ensembles and doing all these things as a, a, just a very young kid, but he was very much into heavy metal. So I would hang out with them and we'd get in trouble together and we would just play, we would um, just listen to music and he would play the drums. And then I got a guitar for Christmas, I think in sixth grade. And so I just started trying to teach myself. I never took lessons, but I had played piano when I was much younger and I hated it. I hated playing piano, um, but it gave me some sort of music, music theory and, and knowledge. And then I picked up guitar and I started learning power chords and I learned that I could hear, you know, a Green Day song or a no effect song and I could kind of hear what was going on and, and play it on the guitar. And so started like going over to Jimmy's house with our friend Brian, who's now, now Sinister Gates. Um, another local neighbor that, you know, was playing music really early because um, his dad had introduced him to it. But we would start jamming. And then, you know, Jimmy was playing with much more accomplished people as well as Brian, but I was playing punk rock and hardcore and I was really into the scene and um, they were more musicians, musicians. Um, and by the time we got into high school, I had played in some punk bands Jimmy was playing in a bunch of stuff. Brian was playing in a bunch of stuff. He was doing like studio work with his dad. I just asked Jimmy um, if he wanted to play in a hardcore band. And, um, and so basically I was just playing punk rock music from seventh, eighth freshman year. And then I wanted to play in a hardcore band with Jimmy and Jimmy kind of out of the um, sort of the roll my roll his eyes. Like, okay, I'll play with you guys. You're my friends. Um, and then we started Avenge Sevenfold in our, you know, in, in high school, um, with some friends from, uh, Huntington high school. And so I, it was just kind of one of those things where going to Warp Tour, going to OzFest, wanted to play in a band, knew how to write songs, knew how to hear stuff, but I wasn't technically ever taking lessons or good at it. And, um, so just playing in the local scene, playing shows at the local library. And we had like a really cool punk rock scene. Um, in, in like the early 96, 97. And I don't know, I just kind of rolled into it because I wanted to play music like what I was listening to, but wasn't good enough at it. So I was playing punk rock and hardcore. It was really just out of a love of music and just figuring, oh, I can, I can hear what's going on. So I think I can do this. And so that's kind of how it happened. Were you singing the whole time? Well, only out of necessity. Um, so me and Jimmy, we would do this thing. We had our friend Kai as well, and we would just cause trouble around the neighborhood. But it's interesting that music was involved. It sounds like a musical, like, well, I don't know why we were doing this, but we would ride our bikes. We had like these little BMX bikes and we would ride around and we would sing. We'd make up songs like, and we would just sing them and we would put harmonies on them and we would but it wasn't something we worked out. We just all naturally knew how to do it. Um, which I look back on it. It's kind of funny because we would sing like a third or a fifth on it or like a, like a, a minor chord. And we would just sing these songs as me, Jimmy and this guy, Kai, and we'd ride around and just do it. So I could always sing. Um, and then when we started writing songs, I was like, I, I guess I'll sing. Um, my voice always had this sort of like lower distortion-y, um, you know, uh, compressed, like Greg Graffin almost sound, um, which we loved Bad Religion. And we, and so we thought it was kind of a cool tone um, mm -hmm. because it was unique. 
Um, and so I just sang until we never really, you know, planned on having a singer, but we just, I just sang out of necessity, kind of just like, okay, I'll sing. I'm kind of writing these songs. And so we'll, I'll sing them. Um, yeah. So it, it's like, really, it's funny that we're talking about this because I haven't really thought about it, but kind of fell into just singing because I was singing Iron Maiden stuff or whatever it was. And then we got into hardcore. So I started trying to learn how to scream. And there's interesting, because if you listen to our early demos, I was really pushing the air and like really damaging the chords a lot. And then as time went on, by the time we did our first album, it was more of like a European black metal type scream. And I started being able to kind of understand the difference between like hardcore and European black metal and something like what Phil and Salma was doing, which was more of like a note. He was singing like notes um, or screaming notes. Uh, so just really working my way through it just kind of in a natural way. Um, and I don't know, we just, you know, I, I remember getting to like 1999 when we really started Avenged Sevenfold, me and Zach had a, a music class at school because, you know, everyone was trying to get out of their like fifth period. It was always like, okay, you do photography or you do music. And we're like, oh, I guess we'll do music. So we'd sit there and the the music teacher wasn't teaching us anything. He just said, uh, go play your instrument for an hour and then come back and show us what you played. So me and Zach just started writing riffs on guitar and that became the first Avenged Sevenfold record, which was just everything we would create at um, music class uh, our junior year in high school. Wow. I mean, what was the first song that you wrote where you were both just kind of like, Oh yeah, fuck yeah, this was a good song. We can do something with this. <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, it really is like evolution where, you know, something comes out of the water and decides it's going to go on land. It's like, <laughs> there, it's like real, real foggy and shaky, right? And I wouldn't say any of those songs were awesome, but I think by the time we, I, like, uh, there's a song on the first record called um, Darkness Surrounding that I think is really cool, like really cool ideas. Um, and there's some cool ideas in the first record. I think the first time there was like a song where I was like, this is really sick and we had like a vision for it is a song called Unholy Confessions, which is on our second album. Um, that's one that I really felt like we cleaned it up and it was like, oh, this is cool. This is, um, this is interesting. and. Um, that's one of those songs that I think was like a landmark song for that era of just metalcore or whatever it was being called at the time. Um, it's one of those songs that could bring people in from punk or metal or hardcore and they could kind of, I think, wrap their heads around it. Um, it had elements of like at the gates, like Swedish metal and it had elements of Vision of Disorder and Poison the Well, sort of like American hardcore. And it had dueling guitars, which had sort of that Iron Maiden feel, but had punk rock in it as well, which was such a California thing. Um, so it had all these elements of what Avenged Sevenfold ended up sort of um, representing. Cool. I love that. You know, coming back to your voice and uh, skipping ahead a little bit, I, I, I think I saw that you trained a bit with Chris Cornell's coach like ahead of this this most recent record he is one of my favorite you know vocalists of all time his voice is 
nuts. Um, and I can really hear the effects in your voice. There were sometimes there were some songs in this album where you sound like Chris Cornell, and I'm curious if like that was an intentional direction that you were trying to take your voice. So actually, you know, after 2004, I had a vocal cord surgery because I was, you know, pushing a lot of that air, like I was talking about, in a kind of a dangerous way every night. And so I had some blood vessels that um, were created. And so I had those removed by a guy in Boston named Dr. Zytel. He works with everyone. I shouldn't say names because a lot of those people have had surgery and they don't want people to know. Um, but you know, like he was the one trying to get Julie Andrews to get her voice back after she had that kind of botched surgery in New York. Um, and he still works with her. Um, and his whole thing is like, he's kind of on the cutting edge of what's going on with the voice. And, um, so I had this surgery with him and then I started seeing, um, this guy, Ron Anderson, who really was a mentor to me. So Ron Anderson had done Axl Rose when he moved to LA through his career. Um, you know, Justin Timberlake, Chris Cornell, um, just so many people. And then Ron, um, I mean, what's the nicest way to put this? He started, um, getting older and he had some problems going on where it was really hard for him to concentrate during lessons. Right. And he ended up passing away a couple of years ago now. Um, and he was doing everyone from the weekend at the time and the snap, but I did run into some more vocal trouble and a lot of it had to do with now there's all these like competing techniques. And, um, one was that Ron really emphasized bringing the head voice down. But the problem with that sometimes is that you lose the anchor in the voice at some point where you really have to have somewhere to stand on, right? Like if you think about always bringing the head voice down and making that all strong so you have this kind of flow through the bridge or the mix, you get sort of, um, you lose your legs in the best way I can put it. And so when I got this other vocal trouble, I went back to Zytel's and back to um, LA and they're like, dude, you're, you're, chords are in big trouble. Like they're not healthy. We want you to go see this guy named Seth Riggs. And so for the last few years, I've been um, training with Seth Riggs and Seth Riggs, his whole approach is keeping the anchor on the bottom and then allowing it to flow up the chimney, you know, so using terms that, but I'm sure you can kind of piece together what that is, right? Like it's having this weight on the bottom, but being able to come up to the chimney. And so Seth Riggs is famous for, you know, teaching Michael Jackson and um, Stevie Wonder and, um, you know, the Beach Boys. And, and so he's like, he's 92 years old, but he's got his technique. And so this new record, I really have been implementing that technique. And even from when I recorded the record, I've been working, you know, another year and a half with Seth and it's even more refined and much better even than when the record was recorded. So it's just one of those things where having to teach yourself a completely new way to sing and then trying to go on tour and not fall back into old habits. It's not to say either technique is wrong or right. It's just sometimes as a singer, it's a constant balancing act, right? You can't go too far either way because at the end of the day, it's the middle voice that really suffers. And you hear things like what happened with Bon Jovi a couple of years ago. If you listen to those songs, like where it's breaking in the middle, but he can sing high and he can sing low. And even with like Axel sometimes, you know, he can sing high and he can sing low, but in that middle is where it gets all messed up. And a lot of that is just finding the, um, 
the balance and the ebb and flow of what is healthy through there, the right airflow, the right vowel placement, the right, you know, width, you know, singing is sort of like a figure eight. And, mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is you can, you have a lot of room on the top and the bottom to mess around. But when you go through the middle for a, a male, you know, F, F sharp G, you got to be real tight how you get through there, or you're going to blow it out, or you're going to get too weak. Um, and so that's a, a long answer on vocals, but um, it really is just a balance of staying in shape, staying cognizant of what's happening, really concentrating on technique when you're in that middle range, which is where most of us all sing, you know, all the time. So the new, the new record is, it sounds darker because of the new technique of bottom up instead mm. of the old stuff where it's very top down. Got it. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> that history. <laughs> It's interesting to me. I mean, I actually studied vocal performance in uh, college as well and sing. So I've always found that like my voice performs better. Like when I'm singing, when I am, you know, stress free, not in crisis, let's say. And of course, there are all all kinds of blockers in the body that get in the way, like when you are. And um, you know, one of the things that we talked about a lot the last time we connected was kind of the existential crisis that you were going through, uh, you know, which kind of became the foundation of the record, uh, you know, reading Camus, working with the idea of meaning. And um, yeah, what you shared with me is that you, you know, created this new record about the positivity of meaninglessness. And, you know, wanted to dive into that a little bit, I guess, in relation to like whether that had anything to do with like your more recent vocal crisis, and then also just dive into more of like the existential side of it, as well as what that means. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the timing of everything, um, I was already, you know, I'd done a record, the stage, um, which was, mm-hmm. you know, um, not as personal, but definitely tapped into more serious subject matter. Um, it was a, you know, but then I got injured after that. And then the injury may have led me down the path of more self-exploration. Um, I wasn't able to stay on the grind, right? Tours got canceled. Um, I was unable to sing for a long time and there was potentially, you know, um, career ending damage. And, um, a couple doctors even told me that. Um, so that may have led me down this sort of path of the exploration. Um, but I also think because I was exploring while I was healing and, um, trying to get my voice back, um, I'm glad it happened at that time because the realization of never being able to sing again or do anything again um, was not that daunting to me after I had come out of the 5-MEO thing. I, I, didn't, I didn't care that much. It didn't, like, it didn't ruin me, right? I was like, okay. Um, I'm going to work every single day on this 
even if I don't get back. Like, because I enjoy it. I just, I like doing my vocal lessons every day. I like sitting in the shower and trying to work on something. I love having like a goal, you know? I love like little incremental positive, you know, um, sort of steps in the right direction. And it feels good. I'm going to do it no matter what, even if I never walk on stage again. And if I don't walk on stage again, that's okay too. I had, I had so much fun doing it. And there's so many other things I, that I want to do and cool things to kind of explore. Um, so it's really weird because most people talk to me about it and they go like, oh, you must have been devastated. You must have been this or that. I'm like, no, I just kind of took it one day at a time and just, just put the work in. Um, but that realization was definitely after um, the 5MEO stuff. Um, and it was much more comforting to sort of just like live life and hang out with my family and not necessarily uh, drive myself insane over it. The one thing I did really want was I wanted to get on stage again because I really wanted my kids to be able to enjoy that a little bit more for them than me because all they had ever really seen is dad on YouTube, you know? And it doesn't seem like real, you know? It's like, oh, that's what dad used to do. Um, So there was like something, there was like a little bit of pride there where I wanted to, you know, have them come see some shows. And since then they have, and um, that, that was incredible. You know, they've got these big smiles on their faces and they're like super stoked. So it's cool. That's amazing. Um, yeah, and it feels like, you know, you've established a really healthy relationship with, I mean, with life, it seems. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious though, if, you, if, if you'd share a little bit about some of the, you know, I guess the walls, the, you know, discomforts that you worked through, through 5MEO and like some of the ideas that you were thinking about in like, I know you mentioned like, you know, reading Brian Greene and like reading Camus that, that you ultimately came to terms like on the other side of this thing. I remember, um, the sort of, um, weightiness coming out of it and, um, being super um, just relieved that it was over the first time, but I had no clue that it was going to um, reoccur nightly in my dreams, you know? Um, So we had this really great shaman and some of these things that like, I'm not a mystical person at all. Um, So there's, you know, there's like some of that, like you listen and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, things like, um, (laughs) You know, for me anyways, it's like, um, hey, you know, there's a channel that's being opened and once you drink alcohol again or you drink coffee again, you're going to, you may close down that channel, blah, blah, blah. Um, Things I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, like, let's just do this, right? So then it like hit me like a ton of bricks and then go to sleep the next night and I was in a really bad place. So I went back again to do more to kind of try to break through it to, you know, per her, you know, discretion. And we did, we got in a much better place, but again, it was very, um, punishingly difficult, you know, to break down the sort of letting go and the, and the ego and the sort of, um, you know, the, the mindset that needed to be kind of crushed. But anyway, so the next few days I didn't want to drink coffee and I didn't want to drink alcohol, but I'd go to sleep and I was just like right back in it, you know, this white light toggling with the black. And it was like just pure 
white and black. It wasn't any other thing. It was just white and black. And the, and when I was in the white, it was just just pure love and like content. And then it would just get sucked back into the the black where it was just pure, you know, the worst thoughts, like end it all now. Like this is, it's a joke, like life, it's not worth it. No meaning just, and then it would flip back and I'd have these dreams all night and I'd wake up literally for 10 days straight and just pouring sweat, like just be drenched in sweat. And, um, I remember, um, one of the days we had like, it was like Easter or something, or it was like some sort of event. And we went to, we went to like a buffet with my, with my family and with some cousins of mine. And I remembered like, I do not want to go to this. I can't, I can't deal with this, but I go like a dead man walking. Um, and I get there and like, I can't even look at meat. I can't look at like, I can only like eat some like eggs and some veggies. And my, I remember my cousin like going, oh, what are you like a vegetarian now or something? And I'm just like sitting there like sweating and like, just want to like, like, I couldn't even believe people, right? Like, just like, leave me alone. I can't. And so then, um, I remember I went and called the shaman again and we were like, let's, let's do another round. Let's try to flush this out. So did that. And again, another like 10 days or so of just insanity. And then I was just depressed. I just walked the streets and I was like, it was pure depression of like, I had almost seen, I saw that I was going to die and I knew it was a beautiful place, but I was going to miss my family. But I knew it was, I was with my family, but I didn't quite believe it. I didn't buy in. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was so weird. It was like, I like my life and now I've just thrown a wrench in it. And now I've seen that there is no meaning and that none of this stuff lasts very long. And the beauty was darkness to me and the, and it was just so crazy. And so it was just like a, it was like a six month long process of like coming to terms with the reality of everything. Everything seemed pointless. Um, and you know, I did listen to some or read and, and listen to some audiobooks with Brian green and read a lot of philosophy or read just portions of books that were based around, you know, life. And you, and you start trying to fill your brain with positive things and then negative things. Cause that seemed to resonate more and it seemed more realistic where the other stuff just seemed like fluff. And then at some point I just, I remember being on, I remember being trying to go out with my friends and I couldn't do anything. I remember just being amazed by the universe and just being like, like, what the, like, what is this? You know, like, and, it, and it's so hard to even talk about because it just seems so like, like, yeah, duh. But, but when you're feeling it at the deepest level, it's just, you're stuck. And, um, and I don't know, there was no moment that really pulled me out. I started like playing a bit with like microdosing mushrooms and I, was doing like on the weekends, I would take heavier doses and I'd always get to this place of the light, you know, like the sort of fear and then the light and like, Oh, this is amazing. It's okay. It's okay. Like, and then this sort of like worldview started surrounding me of like, yeah, you're not here very long, but it's okay. And just spend time doing like quit, quit, like, like 
looking forward to the future and just look forward to being in the moment. And, and so, yeah, like really took up mindfulness more, more seriously. Um, just all these things that would help slow me down and allow me to be in the, in the present moment. Um, and then also being aware that things like caffeine and alcohol and, um, eating meat were very like, um, repulsive to me at the time. And like being like aware of that, like, well, why was it like, what, what's it do to my body and why, you know, like not anti those things, just sort of like, like, okay, just what was going on. So I I don't really have a, um, a great way to, um, I guess, um, put my thoughts. I think the thoughts are really put into the record, um, of what I was going through in so many different ways where, you take something like game over um, where, yeah, it's like at any moment you just open your eyes and you're here now and you, and you can't really, you can't really quantify or, or understand how it, how you got here. Um, and I think that happens with a lot of people in life. And um, you know, that, that song dips a little bit into free will cosmic, a little more ethereal and gets a little more mystical with reincarnation, which I, energy does reincarnate just not in the way that's probably most hopeful to humans in my opinion. Um, and, um, you know, and things like, I mean, all these songs are just really born out of this sort of existential get outside yourself and kind of see it all for what it is. Um, so I guess the, 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 the record is my ledger. Because the thoughts are really hard to to, to make make sense. Yeah, I totally I get that. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Yeah, and I totally understand that 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 kind of post verbal or like post experience of like I don't know an acid trip or something where you experience the entire universe, but like speaking about it is meaninglessness because you can't actually capture what you're what you, what you went through. Yeah, the, you you really see the uh, flaws in in language, especially when you come right out of that. Yeah. You know, like you. I remember when our our shaman was over me, and she's awesome, but she's like, you know, you know, hey, sweetie, how do you feel? And I couldn't. There was no word. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't talk. I was trying to talk, but then I couldn't. Yeah. And she's like, oh, just take your time. You know, like, but it's like. You just, you have tears and you can't, you, and you realize, oh, language is funny. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, this is funny. I'm going to try to say something, um, but it's not going to get the point across at all. Right. Um, and then as, as, you know, a couple of minutes wears off, you're like, okay, I can, I'm going to use these words, but she knows. <laughs> and that's why you want to be with someone like that, right? Because she knows. Totally. totally. Yeah, she um, gets it. Yeah, she gets it. So, um, Interesting. For sure. Yeah. I mean, given the limitations of, you know, our forms of communication with capturing the essence of, like, what you experienced, how do you feel now that, you know, the album is out in the world? You know, does it feel like a proper manifestation of your experience? Yeah, I think it's a really, um, you know, looking at it now being kind of further away from it. 
I think it's going to be extremely meaningful and helpful. It's going to be a companion to people the same way Brian Greene and Albert Camus were a companion to me. Um, Because there's other humans that are able to um, talk or speak on things that particular people are going through. Um, And there will be a larger portion of people that it will make no sense and it's not something that they choose to dig into. And there will be a portion of people that just simply enjoy the music and they're never going to take it further than that. But to be able to create something that I know will help people because that helped us, that helped me um, articulate those things. And it took a long time to craft those lyrics because, again, you're trying, to, you're trying to speak on something that's kind of unspeakable. I think it does a good job of it, and it lets people know. And that's all you really want to know, that people have been here before and they've made it out on the other side. Right. Um, and uh, when you're in that place, um, you kind of need that positive uh, affirmation, you know, or that, that sort of positive, positive reinforcement sometimes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That was, uh, you know, the best piece of advice I ever got going into a trip was just like, just remember this, this too, uh, you know, to quote the Bible, this too shall pass, you know, this, this will end, things will change. Um, and yeah, that's when, you know, impermanence and, and being able to lean on the humans that have come before us are like, you know, I guess part of that, that like positivity of meaninglessness that, that you're talking about. Yeah, totally. Um, the impermanence thing, just always remembering that, you know, my life right now is really good. And I think it's good to, um, good to recognize that. And then just enjoy it because there's always those times where someone's sick or someone's dying or you have a broken arm. <laughs> you know, there's so many times when, when life is kind of miserable. And right. so it's really important that when it's not miserable to just really dig in, you know, and enjoy it. Um, and I think, you know, when you're in, when you're in the, the thick of it, you really don't think it's going to pass, but it does until it doesn't, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, I always laugh at when people, when people always, you know, the, the go-to is like, it'll be fine. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's always fine until it's not. Yeah. Um, but that's just the reality of things, you know, most of the times it's going to be fine. <laughs> and at some point it, it isn't anymore, but that's okay too. Yeah, totally. Well, that seems like a great spot to wrap things up. I just have one more question for you that I ask everybody at the end of these. You're going to a desert island. You get to bring three records with you. What are they? Um, it's Daft Punk, Random Access Memories. It's um, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. And... Um, I would take um, Appetite for Destruction, Guns N' Roses. Cool. 
Would you bring along that uh, little Coca-Cola, whatever cassette player you used to have? No, because the tape would melt on the desert island. <laughs> That's true. I'm but... hoping that there's Wi-Fi and we can just stream it. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, let's say there is. Um, cool, thank you. Um, it's a good trio of records. Um, and thank you for your time and energy and thoughts and for sharing all these things. It's been you know, really great and, and appreciate you. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. Appreciate you too. It was fun. Um, yeah, I guess for people who want to follow along, to listen to Venge Sevenfold, come see the upcoming tour, like where's the best place for them to follow along? You know, I'm a big fan of Discord. Discord is, it's interesting. We've got 50,000 people in there. And what I like about it is that we have every individual show mapped out and there's individual chat rooms for them. And we see hundreds and hundreds of people every show meeting up using Airbnbs together, doing the parking lot stuff. And I think I just haven't seen that sort of thing used for a band before. And it's incredible watching these people all become like a real family and helping each other out. So I think if you can get into the discord, meaning like if you can wrap your head around this sort of new, I know for, for older people, it's a new app. Um, it's just, it's awesome to meet new people and, and have a great time at the shows. Totally. That's amazing. Yeah, I love it. Music as the connective thread bringing people together. Yep. 100%. Cool, man. Well, best of luck as you take off on the tour and, you know, wish you the best. Thanks a lot, man. You too. All right. That's it for this episode of Big Brother and the Hodling Company. I'm your host, McKeegan Voice, and you can keep up with me and all the latest Web3 music trends on Twitter at McKeegan. That's M A C E A G O N. This show is a production of Decentral Media. And you can visit us at decentral.io and remember, only you can prevent and fend off. Big Brother.